I met with a a psychologist uh, while I was on a trip in Jamaica. It was just a weird place to to meet a psychologist. And we were talking about smoking and we were talking about smoking pot and we were talking about vaping. And this was a Jungian analyst uh, psychologist. So the conversation, as you can imagine, went straight to the symbolism of smoke. And so let's talk about smoking. Let's talk about vaping. Let's talk about turning one of the oldest forms of worship, burning and smoke, right? Whether it was incense, a fire, later in First Nation, uh, tobacco, marijuana, and now vaping. Because there is a ritual behind it, but it is also an, an addiction and a battle we need to look at. My guest, John D. Miranda, he and I have done a show about smoking before, and, and I was just saying to him off the air, it was very provocative, made me uh, happily uncomfortable, because the questions that we have around youth and adults who are in recovery is, do you take on the battle of nicotine and smoking and that powerful, powerful ceremony and ritual of taking a break from your life and going outside and hanging out with friends and breathing? It's just that we're all what we're breathing. Do you do that at the same time? And, and I believe Professor DeMiranda has a lot of really intense information about this. So I'm excited to have him as a guest. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. My guest today is Professor John D. Miranda. Uh, as I said, we've spoken before. This is a WCSED, a West Coast Symposium on Addiction Disorder version of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you, fo- thank you folks for joining me and my guest John D. Miranda. John, thanks so much for being back on the show and welcome back to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to our talk. I am too. And it was your last podcast, despite it being short, and for the Cape Cod Symposium on uh, uh, Addiction Disorders, um, you know, it left me with uh, really second guessing some things I've said many years. And and let me start with the obvious. Um, when we are uh, in recovery, one of the kind of almost laughable concepts is here we are all talking about the things we got to stop doing. And then when we have a break, we eat cookies or donuts and we stand outside and drink monsters mm-hmm. or coffee and we smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And all of those are addictive substances. And yet when you and I spoke, you you gave me a big yellow flashing light saying, hang on a second. So as as you bridge into that, start with uh, who you are, where you work, what the heck you're doing, and then go into your spiel about the hang on a second. Okay. Well, I'm a person in long-term recovery, and in my case, that means I've not used alcohol or drugs for about 45 years, and that has allowed me to work in this field uh, where I'm currently doing a, a research and program development around the issue of so many of our, our friends in recovery Uh, dying from cigarette use. Uh, This is an interest of mine that started a few years ago. Um, I teach alcohol and drug counselors at UC Berkeley and UC San Diego. And to your your comment earlier about the ritualistic aspects of smoking, let me just tell uh, one of the ways I open my class is I ask people to think about how we prohibit drugs. That often it's prohibition that uh, gets us into trouble when it comes to drugs. Sure, sure. As it it did with alcohol prohibition. And one of the texts that I use in this course is William White's Slaying the Dragon. 
and I posed the question to my students, well, why do you think he chose that as a title for his book, Slaying the Dragon? And they, you know, they kind of think about it. And I said, well, and it has to do with what I mentioned earlier about uh, drug prohibitions often being a surrogate for concerns we have about racial and ethnic minorities. And so they'll kind of hem and hide. And I said, and, and these prohibitions really started here in California in the 1860s when all these Chinese workers came here to work on the railroad and dig gold, et cetera. Um, and in Chinatown during that time, when you were knocking off work, instead of saying, hey, let's go to the bar for a beer, Joe, somebody would say, hey, let's go down to the den and chase the dragon. And yeah. in that case, it meant smoke some opium. The dragon being the smoke that came out of the opium pipe. So when William White decided to write a book on the on the history of addiction, treatment, and recovery in the United States, he titled it "Slaying the Dragon." Smoke ritual, etc. Um, in my own situation, when I uh, went into a treatment program back in the, uh, the mid '70s, I was a very heavy smoker. I was smoking four packs a day of unfiltered cigarettes. And when I went into treatment, uh, the medical director at the treatment facility was very clear that I should not stop the cigarette use, that in some ways uh, his belief in the conventional wisdom at that time was that somehow if you quit smoking, you might return to alcohol use. And that, that it was more important to focus on the alcohol use than the tobacco use. And he said, don't even think about it for five years. Don't even think of quitting for five years. Now, at the rate I was smoking, that was pretty bad advice. Um, and in fact, I just got off the phone with my insurer, Kaiser Permanente. Yeah. It's now 45 years later, but my physician, my primary care physician, insists that I have a CT scan of my lungs every year, even though I quit smoking in 1978. So it, stay, it stays with us, you know, and when I, when I uh, began to research this issue, I was struck by the fact that uh, the statistics about the numbers of people coming into treatment who are smoking is off the charts, 60, 70, even 80% of people coming into treatment are, are cigarette smokers. And in fact, it's killing us more than the consequences of our alcohol and drug use. And it's, it's interesting to note that the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, both died from lung-related diseases. So let me let me say then that out of the gate, that sounds so counterproductive because while we're dealing with um, life-threatening issues, you were literally told, "Don't worry about this life-threatening issue. Worry about these other one." Is are you just how do, how do I say this? Is this just choosing the greater of evils to focus on first? I mean, is there a deeper science behind this? Because certainly you've taken what you were told and have really looked into this with deep research. Well, the times have changed, you know, as Bob Dylan says, the times <laughs> are changing. And the way we thought of cigarettes in 1975. Yeah is totally different from the way we think of cigarettes today and what we know about cigarettes. So it's part of that change. You know, I, we looked at this issue, me and a colleague about 15 years ago, and even then the conventional wisdom was that there was no funding, not a lot of interest. But now 15 years later, there's an awful lot of interest 
in the dangers of, to, of cigarette use and the fact that there are now these things called e-cigarettes or yeah. vaping yeah. that yeah. can be a very, very successful transition for people who are using e-cigarettes, uh, regular tobacco cigarettes to go to e-cigarettes. And there's some ample evidence to indicate, according to the Royal College of Physicians in, in, in England, when somebody switches from tobacco cigarettes to e-cigarettes, 95% of the junk that goes into their lungs stops going into their lungs. Wow. So there is still some risk. There's no, no question that there's some risk to vaping. But as uh, a noted tobacco researcher, uh, Mr. Russell, Dr. Russell said, people smoke for the nicotine, but they die from the tar, meaning those, yeah. those that junk that goes into your lungs. Sure, sure. So we now have, we now have uh, e-cigarettes. We have there's a new product called Snooze that the FDA has just approved, which is kind of an oral nicotine replacement, if you will. It's a lozenge that you can suck on to get your nicotine uh, fix for the day. And um, while we're on the subject, one of my uh, learnings in recent years is that nicotine isn't quite the dangerous drug it's let off to be. Um, and here's when we get into the youth issue again. Sure. I'm noticing public service announcements aimed at young people that are grossly overstating the harm from nicotine, just like we grossly overstated the harm from cannabis for so many years. Of course, of course. Nicotine, you know, to say that nicotine is a brain poison, which is what some of the public service announcements that are aimed at youth are now saying, denies the fact that if it's that bad, why do we sell it in drugstores in the form of nicotine replacement lozenges, nicotine replacement therapists? These have been approved by the FDA to help people quit smoking, but they're full of nicotine, this brain poison. Um, you know, we're overstating it. I think that in many situations, we ought to be talking to young people about nicotine being more on the line of, of, of caffeine than heroin. So, okay. so I, I yeah, I, I mentioned this to you last time. You're talking to someone who used vaping as a way to quit smoking forever. I had been an on and off smoker since uh, college. Well, acting school in California, because, you know, being in acting school in California, everybody has to smoke. So, you know, it was a requirement from the teachers, I re if I remember correctly. But it, it followed me up until, I'm going to say, seven years ago when I had moved to a vape pen and I dialed down the nicotine and was only left with the ritual and was able to finally say, well, I don't like this. The ritual isn't enough to keep me paying this kind of money and blah, blah, blah. But I knew it was a process. So I, I am in agreement. I want to ask about popcorn lung. And then because I remember asking you about that the last time and you were like, hang on there, because popcorn lung was a specific uh, uh, kind of redirect. Let's talk about that. Yeah, because it's a good example of how we get drug policy and messages for young people wrong. If, if you go back to 2018, 2019, there were a series of um, young people showing up in emergency rooms with a serious injury to their lungs. One of those, uh, one version of that was popcorn lungs. There was a lot of hysteria around this. Huge. A, lot of, a lot of fingers pointed to vaping as the culprit. And we saw um, news reports that really indicted vaping as the culprit. Well, now that the dust has settled and we've really looked at these cases, 
the vast majority of these cases, and I mean like 80% and 85%, were caused by young people who were first of all buying their vaping uh, content materials on the black market on the street. And these black market products were using vitamin E acetate to thin the cannabis huh. in the vape pen. So it was the vitamin C acetate, not the fact of vaping itself, but the vitamin C acetate sold on the black market on the streets because of the prohibition of young people uh, being able to vape that was the cause of what's called the E-Valley epidemic. E-Valley stands for, let's see, e-cigarette and vaping related lung injury. So, and despite the fact that we now know it wasn't vaping per se, when you go to the, the websites of the CDC, the Lung Association, et cetera, they still have linked vaping with the epidemic, not the real source of, of the problem, which was this vitamin C acetate. And they talk about, they don't even have the, the guts to say these were black market purchased. They, they only say that uh, the, the vast majority came from what they call informal sources. Now, when you prohibit something, you create a black market. That's one thing we know about prohibition policy. It might sound good at one level, but it creates a black market. And when we say to kids, you can't do something, they're gonna go underground and do it. Sure. We know that about many, many kids. They're gonna go underground and do it. And they're gonna to say to us, hey, I don't do that. So, I, so my question's coming coming up now, and and after your answer, I wanna I wanna break out to give a shout out of of our sponsors. Is clarify for my listeners exactly which end or which middle you're coming from about cigarettes, vaping, and recovery? Because you you sound permissive, you sound very uh, liberal with accepting these things, but you're also pretty insistent on making sure people have the actual facts from which to make their decision. And what I've heard you talk about now twice is that it's, it's still propaganda and it's the propaganda that, that, I mean, is that what pisses you off or like, like, what is it? What do you want the listeners to hear you saying, don't worry about cigarettes or worry about cigarettes or learn the truth or where you stand on this? Well, okay, let me cite a study that was done in 2017 in British Columbia. Yeah. They interviewed about eight, about a hundred young people and asked them for what kinds of messages do they really resonate with? And across the board, they said, you know, these messages about abstinence and zero tolerance, we just tune those out. Yes, of course. Okay? The messages about the real risks associated with smoking or vaping or, or drug use is what we want to hear from adults. So I'm opposed to these kind of arbitrary abstinence, just say no, zero tolerance approaches because they don't work. Yeah, you're right. They don't work. And, and we, and we still, you know, we don't have, we have a federal government and we have a lot of agencies that can't say that. They can't say that about cannabis. They can't say it about vaping. They can only go to the zero tolerance, total abstinence message. And that's what I think is crazy. It's, it's independent people who are not getting government money who can say, well, let's take a look at a harm reduction approach to this, not a zero tolerance approach to this. And for parents, for parents who wanna to talk to their kids about drugs, you know, when they say, hey, I'm into zero tolerance, 
they need to know that according to the research, their kids just shut down. Thank you, dad. Bye. Right, right. Because now we're on opposing views. But, My but, only but the parents, but the parents can't go anywhere else right. because they're not taught by you know public service announcements. They're not taught by anybody to go anywhere else. They they feel that they have to embrace this zero tolerance. And and to to back you up, the research that I have seen that keeps children away from risky decisions are number one, family dinners. Number two, parents knowing their kids, friends, parents. Mm -hmm. So community. Number three, something to do between three o'clock and seven o'clock, you know, after school activities, extracurricular. And to your point, the fourth one, that is the, the these are the, those are the top three things that say these are what work. The fourth one is the honest to God truth about cannabis, cigarette smoke, mm -hmm. alcohol, that this scared straight, uh, uh, zero tolerance, um, uh, abstinence only models with sex, porn, drugs, alcohol, smoking, do it doesn't it work. Works. You have to give yeah. people the real information to yeah. make the real choice. And, and most parents are told that that's, they shouldn't do that. It's terrifying. It's okay. terrifying to, you feel like you're giving them permission if you show right. them anything other than the scare tactic. That's right. And, you know, and I, that's one of the reasons I kind of embrace uh, the safety first approach of the Drug Policy Alliance. Let's talk mm -hmm. about that when we come back from okay. the thing. Let me do a quick shout out to our sponsors and, uh, and then come back and talk about the safety of first. And then the other thing, John, is I want uh, if, if you don't mind, this is a left curve or a left hook question. Um, but the last time you and I talked, you spoke about honestly educating your son yeah. and, and the pros and cons of the experience. But then I also want to make sure we, we really touch on the fact that what are you asking treatment centers to do? So we got three points, the yeah, safety okay. first, your son and treatment centers. So hang with me a second, John, we'll be right back. I want to give a shout out to our silver sponsors for the WCSAD uh, 2020 virtual conference. Our silver sponsors showed up with the time, the energy and the money to make sure that C4 events could continue running these conferences, even though we got shut down every single, and it makes sense that this pandemic, it's you know, people don't know which way's up. We don't know who to listen to. So we were safer staying home. Now, the question came, how do we continue to educate and push forward this industry that constantly has to be on the cutting edge of understanding brain chemistry, neurobiology, and uh, environmental as well as neurological traumas. So these silver sponsors are important because they made sure we could still do this. And here you are listening. So let's give a quick moment to say thank you to Discovery Behavioral Health, A Better Life Recovery, Dreamscape Marketing, Alchemies, The Guest House, Oceanfront Recovery, Origins Behavioral Healthcare, and Southworth Associates. Thank you guys for making sure we can still do what we do best, which for me is just talking, but for people like John, it's their teaching and they're giving us the information we need to take back to our facilities, our clients, our parents, our clinicians, our teachers, our professionals to push this industry forward constantly. Let's get back to Professor DeMiranda. Okay, John. Hit me up with this. What is the, the safety first model? 
Well, it, what it is, it's a harm reduction curriculum based on safety, not orthodoxy. And it's put out by the Drug Policy Alliance. It's on their website. It's a 15 lesson curriculum uh, called Real Drug Education for Teens. And it starts with the assumption that some kids are going to experiment. They need honest, uh, truthful information about drugs in a non-judgmental environment. And I would, you know, really recommend, and I do recommend parents to get that. There's a, also a couple of kind of shorter brochures that just talk about the concept of harm reduction approaches versus zero tolerance approaches. It's good information. The, and that's the drugpolicy.org uh, is the website for the, uh, to get that. Now, the, the other issue about my son that we talked about last time is I think because I worked in the alcohol and drug field and I'm a person in long-term recovery, when my son was young, um, my wife and I had some conversations about how we wanted to approach the issue of alcohol and other drugs. And at first we were kind of like, just say no parents, okay? But as he got older um, and it became clear that the world was not black and white and that a zero tolerance line in the sand approach was not where we wanted to be. So we, we started with the assumption that we were gonna teach our son about using alcohol in the context of our family. And he was exposed to alcohol at, at celebrations. Um, and we, we went beyond that. We were you know, really instructive with him. I think many parents want to avoid the subject because they're not comfortable with it. On the other hand, we, we embraced it. We had lots of conversations with him. And when he got to the point where we knew he was gonna you know, begin to drink experimentally, but with his friends and you know, at parties and those kinds of occasions, um, we decided if we drew lawns, lines in the sand, we were not gonna have his trust, okay? Right. If we said, you know, if you do this, we're not gonna, you're gonna be grounded. Uh, you're gonna have some privileges taken away. That we were just gonna drive the behavior underground and we didn't wanna do that. We wanted him to come to us when he was, you know, either needing information or when he was in trouble. Sure. And, and that's what we set out to do. And we had some harrowing moments, but I think uh, in the long term, uh, it worked out. He's 32 years old. He's, he's, not, he's not a person in recovery. He's never had uh, an abuse problem to any kind of level, although he had some rough patches here and there on the way. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and he's now a social worker working with young people. Um, and I think we, you know, managed to navigate that period, but it, it was not without some real risks and we didn't feel we were supported. I mean, at one point I told him, okay, you can host a party at our house on a weekend when Carol and I are going to be away. This was when he was about 17. Okay. And he'd already, we'd already said, you can, you, you can be home alone, but we want to be in touch with you. And finally he wanted to host a few friends over too. And we knew that they were going to be drinking and using. And I said, you know, one of the conditions is I'm going to call you several times during the night. I want to talk to you as to how things go. And I also don't want you um, to tell your friends that I know what's going on because I don't want their parents calling me and saying, what are you doing? Okay. I just said, you, this is between you and us. Um, but you can't say to your friends, oh, my parents know all about this because it would come right back to haunt us. And I knew that there'd be very little support for it because most parents that I was in contact with at the time 
believe the zero tolerance, just say no approach was the only way to go. And we felt differently, so we behaved differently. But there's no support for that if you want to do that. It's very difficult. And, and I would say as a, as a parent, if, if, you know, a parent in the industry, a parent in recovery, a parent with now a 24 and a 25 year old, had you and I had this conversation when our kids were in high school and, and the kids are having a party at your house. Um, I, my question would have gone back to, it sounds like you and your wife were willing to risk the liability. And is, is it, did it come down to that? Or was this, was this solely focused on your son and trust? Well, it, we, we took lots of precautions and we had lots of conversations with him about sure. this. And as long as he, he was willing to structure this event a certain way, okay? You don't tell your other friends about this. You, nobody drives, nobody talks to their parents about the fact that we know, and this will be a safe environment for you. And I felt pretty comfortable that he could execute. And he did. Sure. Um, we called in a couple times during the night to check in, see how things were going. And I think it was okay. So we allowed him as experimentation without, you know, drawing a line in the sand and totally alienating him. I mean, the fact is kids are programmed to want to experiment with all kinds of things. Agreed. And, you know, the other fact is 50% of high school students use drugs. This is not aberrant behavior. This is, you know, it may not be the, the norm, but 50% is pretty close to the norm. And it's almost the majority. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that, you know, like this, this um, curriculum that's offered through the drug policy might be a good place for those parents who say, well, you know, I want to look into this some more. I want to understand more what a harm reduction approach would be because I'm not comfortable, you know, with a just say no total, total abstinence approach. And we're, so we're coming down here last few minutes of the show. So I want to, I want to make yeah. sure if I brought you in to look over my facilities, treatment policies, because a lot of this, we were talking about cigarette smoking in facilities, right? I, I, as a, as a state licensed facility, I have to follow the law. The law states that kids under the age of 18 cannot smoke cigarettes. So my kids right. in the facility don't smoke, but if you had your hands into my curriculum, what would you insist? And I, and I want, I want experts to hear this. I want clinicians to hear this. I want facility owners to hear this. I want parents to hear this. What would you insist that I bring into my facility, in my facility's education? Well, I think, um, you know, a harm reduction approach should really infuse everything you do with young people today. And a, and a zero tolerance approach is to be to avoid it. Now, if you had an adult facility, what I would recommend is that this coming year, as we develop curricula and, and toolkits to help addiction treatment programs become not just uh, smoke-free, which many of them are these days, but that also can offer their clients uh, e-cigarettes, snooze, and other kind of harm reduction mechanisms, the, the likelihood of their clients being successful in uh, transitioning away from cigarettes increases because right. we know that a lot of the cessation counseling, when you say, oh, you can only go to the cessation program, that doesn't have much, uh, doesn't do much good. And my guess is you may have made it to some cessation programs before you started down the e-cigarette path to uh, get away from your own 
tobacco use or tobacco cigarette use. So I would, you know, I would urge people to go to my website where the current tobacco uh, harm reduction project that I'm working on and the focus groups that we had and that information is available. It's also where we will be posting the work of this year, which is to create recovery friendly uh, curricula for individuals or treatment programs that want to use the full array of harm reduction strategies to dump cigarettes. And what is your website? Let's make sure people get the website uh, you want them to go to. Peninsula Health Concepts, all one word. PeninsulaHealthConcepts.com. PeninsulaHealthConcepts.com. Can there, yeah. is there, a, is there, uh, whoops, concepts. Make sure you have the concepts. C-O-N-C-E-P-T-S. Um, is there a direct email line of sight that people can have with you? With you? Yeah, they can email me either through the website or my email address is Solanda, S-O-L-A-N-D-A, Solanda, at sbcglobal.net. Professor De Miranda, thank you so much. I really do. Uh, I, they, these conversations, man, they get they get to me, and like I find myself disagreeing and agreeing. But you, one thing I want listeners to know is you've got evidence, and and that's what you're out here doing. Is you're you're not just promoting an idea; you're promoting some facts, and they need to be looked at by by facilities, by parents, by clinicians, um, and that's that's why I really dig you as a guest. And I and I also. Uh, just want to commend your the your 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 ferocity of integrity to just stand <laughs> in this be like hey I'm just about to say something that's pretty unpopular something I did with my kid, but again the evidence stands your kid's doing well and he's out in the world helping others so thank you. Well, thank you, Aaron. This is always a pleasure, and I wish you and your family good holidays and lots of safety. Back at you too. Thank you so much. And I do look forward to the day that we can actually shake hands and uh, qu quit these virtual hugs and get some real ones going. So we looking will. forward to our next time uh, uh, sitting across the table and talking. All right, buddy. Hang tight just a second. So this, that's what I meant, like, like the, the yoga conversation of, of recovery. Let's have the tough talks. Let's have the interesting talks. Let's sit down with the evidence and the source material and actually um, have the conversation about what's going to work and what's not going to work and what we could do differently. I want to thank Deepin Productions for their uh, uh, producing of these shows, Your Cause Consulting for getting these shows in front of the right people. Uh, I want to thank C4 Events for keeping me on the team to have these incredible conversations. I want to thank the silver sponsors mentioned in today's show. And I want to thank you listeners for listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing, and leaving a review for Beyond Risk and Back so we can get this show in front of as many people as possible. Thank you so much, listeners. Parents, take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. I will see you soon.